0: Welcome back to the fan, Jimmy Cook and Brendan King, coming to you from the drivehubor.com studios. Time to shift gears. Head to the mower shop in Fishers Hotline and themowershop.com. It's a place to go for all your residential and commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, repairs, services, and so much more. The mower shop has you covered. We welcome in one of our favorites on the Pacers beat, the man himself, Tony East. Nice enough to take some time with us. Tony, after yet another solid performance from Benedict Matherin, I'm asking you to be my financial advisor here. Do I need to put some cash on a little plus 280 for the young man from Arizona to win Rookie of the Year? Your thoughts?
1: I'm actually surprised it's still at plus 280. I know Bankero's been good, but Matherin's played more and has been fantastic all season. It seems like he would be... The favorite right now. So I, I, would, I would think that would be a smart
0: move, yes. I kind of felt the same way uh, because Ben Caro was minus 475, and that really surprised me. Wow. Just from a Vegas odds standpoint, I would have thought, actually, to be honest with you, I had thought, and I haven't seen a ton of Ben Caro this year, I had still thought from, maybe I am have too much Pacers hype in my veins, I thought he was the favorite. I didn't realize that it was clearly, or I didn't realize it was Ben Caro, and I definitely didn't realize it was clearly Ben Caro in terms of the way Vegas is saying things. But, I mean, if he keeps playing like he does, in terms of Matherin, another solid performance against a Warriors team, even though they were a little short Uh, How would you feel about, let's focus just on Matherin to start his performance last night?
1: Yeah, he, can, he always finds a way to, you know, adjust through his struggles and bounce back. And that stands out to me so much about him throughout this season. As both a young player and a rookie, that's an unusual skill to have, right? He's had a rough month of December. A rough is even h- harsh to say, but, you know, for his standards, uh, uh, a substandard month of December, and then to have this game against the champs where he scores 24 and hits a bunch of huge shots and is, you know, using the coaching that Rick Carlisle gave him to practice the day before on, you know, taking in rhythm threes is just so impressive. And not only did he play really well, obviously, 24 points, his U2 a plus 34 in 36 minutes, which means in the 12 minutes he was out, they lost by like 28 or something, which is crazy. Um, you know, is that he was huge in key moments, right? When the Warriors won this huge run in the third quarter, they cut it from 20 down all the way to three. Matherin checks in and immediately they're up 13, right? Like he saved the game in that instance. He had some huge buckets early in the second quarter when the Pacers started their surge. Like He was not only playing well in terms of numbers, he was playing well in huge moments when the game was kind of hanging in the balance and the Pacers really needed him. Tony,
2: it's BK. Second quarter last night, was that the most impressive quarter of the year?
1: I would think so. Yeah, forty-seven points is nuts. And the Warriors, for all the struggles they've had this year, they're still a really good defensive team. To be able to, you know, put up that much in one quarter on the defending chances is, is so impressive. And you know, the Warriors sent out a note at halftime that that's the most they've given up in a quarter uh, this season, and the most they've given up in a half in a first half, excuse me, this season. The Pacers just tore them up, right? And they were playing at their absolute best, to me, stylistically in that quarter, right? Halliburton, I think, had seventeen points in that quarter alone and four assists. And he's always said, you know, they want to be a transition team, right? They want to run and, and hit you when they're moving fast. That's why they try to inbound the ball. The second it goes out of bounds, they run into the stand and grab it. And in that quarter, they were doing that a bunch. But part of being a good transition team is you have to get stops. And they haven't always been able to be that kind of team consistently. In that quarter, they held the Warriors, and mostly every Warrior except for Steph Curry, to off an off quarter and only gave up, I think, 26 or 28 points in that frame, right? So they combined the good defense with the offense. They played the way they always say they wanted to play. They looked really connected. That was maybe the most impressive quarter they've had all year, given who they were playing against and the way they did it.
0: Tony East, nice enough to join us. You can find his work in a variety of different places, locked on Pacers as well as for Forbes and a number of different areas as well. Tony, for your observations last night, uh, earlier in the week, Coach Carlow talked about how he was not worried about Tyrese Halliburton, rightfully so. His plus minus was still really sharp in that loss against Miami, and then he was back to his usual self against... The Warriors, where did you see that bounce-back performance in terms of just his overall night uh, against a Warriors team? And again, as we mentioned, was shorthanded, but still an opportunity for Halliburton to make an impact yet again.
1: Yeah, this is what he does, right? Like, he is really good, like Matherin, too, at right? Assessing what's going wrong and fixing it. He even told us himself at practice on Tuesday, right? He he looked at the tape. They played Miami. He missed every shot he took, right? It was the worst shooting game of his career. He only had six assists. Buddy Heald, who's played every game of his career with Halbert, and said, "Yeah, I think that's the worst game he's ever played." Not in a mean way, just you know discussing the performance. And Halbert said, "Yeah, I got to be more aggressive, right? Like it, it was tough because the Heat were all over him, and Bam Adebayo was switching and making his life incredibly difficult, but." The Heat did a fantastic job making his life hard. He had to be more aggressive to to beat them, and he couldn't do it. And he acknowledged that himself. So what does he do? Well, two nights later against the Warriors, right, third most shots he's taken in a game this season with 17 against Golden State. He got to the foul line a bunch and took seven free throws, which is the third most he's taken in a game this season. Now, obviously, making a lot of those shots makes you look really good, but he recognized that the way the Heat were defending him made him play too passive, and they moved him off ball, which allowed him to have that great plus-minus that you noted. he he needed to play more like Tyrese Albert, be more aggressive, make the offense hum, be the guy that he thinks he can be the leader of the team. And he really did that in a big moment. And I think that was so impressive that all season long, he finds a way to do that. Right. When Chris Duarte is having his third point game, right, that was the second fewest shots Albert's taken in the game this season. So he knows when he needs to defer. He knows when he needs to, you know, pass and be a 15 assist guy, like against the Lakers on the road trip, for example, like every time a game starts, he quickly figures out what his role or need is in that game and he does it. And he did that again against the Warriors and bouncing back after, you know, maybe his worst game ever was extremely impressive.
2: Tony, Andrew Nemhard, quiet but relatively efficient, four or six from the field, eight points, three rebounds last night and three assists. I want to ask you about a soundbite that Rick Carlisle said. It was a few days ago, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he mentioned something along the lines of Andrew Nemhard has been one of the, either the most coachable or most easiest guys as a rookie he's had since he was in Detroit with Tayshaun Prince. I, I just wanted to get your reaction to that soundbite because that's a pretty telling statement, I feel like.
1: Yeah, Dustin Duprak from the Indy Star asked him if he's, you know, had a rookie who's defended this well or capably consistently. And uh, the first name that Rick Carlisle said was Tayshawn Prince. And it's kind of been reported, I think, by Tim McMahon of ESPN Dents that you know, part of Carlisle not lasting as long in Detroit as, as uh, every other stop was that he didn't play Prince as much as the organization necessarily wanted. So <laughs> he he even then he thought he thought Tayshawn was unbelievable, but that was kind of funny to me in my head that now he trusts Snumbard so much, right? He starts for him every game, he's on the perimeter, they're getting him more on ball reps, like he's been Fantastic for the Pacers this season in a way that I don't think many expected. Right, even Jalen Sucks, his teammate at Gonzaga, who I talked to when the Magic were here, said, "Yeah, you know, he he was really good when I was his teammate, but I didn't expect him to be this level of perimeter defender right away. Like he's just so coachable on that end of the floor. His verticality is impressive. His foot speed's impressive, and you know, to be mentioned in the same breath as a rookie as as Tayshaun Prince, a, a multi-time champion and one of the better, you know, defenders." ever, is extremely impressive. It says a lot about both Nambard and Carlisle's memory that he could draw back that far that fast.
0: Tony, in your opinion, again, this isn't a massive deal, I don't think, because he's still making contributions. Uh, he's viewed, or at least was viewed in the running, as a candidate or maybe a front runner for six-man of the year. But Matherin, 29 games played, just the one start. I know a lot of that has been situational, and, and the Pacers have a nice thing going with the lineup they're out there. But do you expect those opportunities – to come more from Atherin here in the final two thirds of the season, or is this role for this year for him likely to be first guy off the bench, making an impact that way?
1: Yeah, I think for now it's going to continue to be first guy off the bench. Right? And he, like even last night, for example, he played 36 minutes, right? It's not like right. him coming off the bench is this massive hindrance to his minutes total. And still to this moment of the season, over half of his playing time is still with Tyrese Haliburton, like, in general, the Pacers are still doing a good job of prioritizing, getting him in situations that are good for his development, finding lineups that work for him while still having the, the rotation that makes the most sense for them. And Carlisle's kind of maintained the whole season, what I think is correct, that you know, he, he should come off the bench. It's the best for the team, right? Their starting lineup, despite it literally starting games pretty horribly all year, is still a net positive because it's so good in the third and fourth quarters and even late in the second. And when Matherin comes in, that group has been really impressive and it lets him Matherin, go against bench players. When he checks in, it lets the rotation be balanced in a way where buddy healed and Halliburton can use their chemistry together. It's just worked. Right. And, and so Carlisle's points kind of been, why would we start right? Like so what's the point when everybody's in kind of the optimal position, it's still working for us and we can still play everybody as much as we want with who we want them to. And I kind of think that makes sense. So maybe next season, maybe later in this season, if there's a trade, I don't know when the exact timing would be, but At some point, right, Rick has said this too. He said, yeah, he's going to start at some point. Like, he's a special rookie. But right now, I think everybody's kind of in the right spot for what the Pacers are wanting to do.
2: Tony East is joining us on the guest line, brought to you by The Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Tony, any concern to Jalen Smith's quiet month? He's only been in double figures three times in December. November, he was much better. But last night, four points and six rebounds. He just hasn't felt like his same self, Tony, that we got used to late in last season.
1: Yeah, he definitely has had kind of an off-season, really, compared to how good he was after the trade last year. He was knocking down threes. He looked mobile, And I think that some of it the Pacers are starting to address and realize that he's better playing the five than the four, right? And and he's had a lot of off-performances trying to fit in, figure out what he can do, chase guys on the perimeter. Well, very recently, as in two games ago, they change their starting lineup, right? Aaron Nesmith now starts at the four, and Jalen Smith is now the backup five. The loser of that exchange is Isaiah Jackson, who is currently not in the rotation. But Jalen Smith now is playing the five with the second unit, and the shots still aren't falling. I think he missed every shot against the Heat, and I forget how many points he had last night. But he had, I think, a couple blocks and six rebounds and limited minutes against Golden State. So I think that what they're doing now is going to help him where – his role will be the five. He can be on the inside more. He can, this is kind of the role he had last year with the Pacers. He can defend on the interior more. His rebounding is more valuable down there. He doesn't have to run around the perimeter as much on the offensive end. I think that will help him. And Neesmith's done well defensively, especially with the starting group. So I think that this will help the team in general, but I agree that Smith's had a lot of struggles this year. He hasn't really fit in at the four spot. He's, Struggled to have an impact, put the ball in the basket, had some ugly moments on on really both ends of the floor, and he's had some really impressive nights too, like on the road trip. But the, the consistency hasn't been there. That was a concern coming into the season, and I think them moving into the reserve five could help go a long way in helping him.
0: Tony East, nice to, have to take some time with us here on the Mower Shop in Fishers hotline. You can go to the Mower shop.com or head to the Mower Shop in Fishers for all your residential, commercial mower needs as well as snow blowers. Services, repairs, and so much more at the Motor Shop and Fisher's the Motor You can follow Tony on Twitter at T East NBA. Tony, looking a little big picture here, you and I, uh, you were kind enough to have me on locked on Pacers uh, shortly after the draft uh, earlier this year, and we talked a little bit about the direction of the franchise, where we wanted to see things go. And at the time, and I've shared that, you know, I was wrong with where the Pacers were going to be, but I was still in the Victor Wembenyama uh, dreamscape, <laughs> so to speak. I know the Pacers are, at least at this point, out of the running for that and would have a hard-pressed time of getting back into that based on where they are and how talented this group is. But you've seen a third of the season now. Is this group closer to playoff team caliber, or are they closer to a team that's not at the front of the lottery but a lottery team by the end of the season?
1: I think they're closer to a lottery team. They're not that far from it now. I mean, they're still, even with a really impressive and exciting start, you know, they they were – I think four games over 100 in mid-November. Like, right now, they're seventh in the East still, right? Like, they're in the play, and right now they're they're a two-game 2, two game tournament loss away for being in the lottery right now, even with the season that they've had. And they haven't played any of the top three teams in the East as of now. Like, they, they haven't played some of the teams at the top of the West. In fact, most of them, although they did beat New Orleans, right? So I think that th- their schedule will get harder. They have more road games and home games the rest of the way, I think, by one. Like, I don't expect them to be a playoff team this season even though they have been much better than i even i expected and ahead of schedule certainly they're a better team than basically everybody predicted before the season i don't think they're quite a playoff team of yet i think they're going to settle in somewhere between that 10 and 14 pick range which is certainly a no fun spot to be uh you're kind of hoping the lottery gods can smile upon you and and move you up in this loaded draft but they've had a surprising season certainly and, and maybe are closer to contention than they thought before it started
0: Tony, your latest tweet was regarding Aaron Niesmith and how he's played excellent defense so far for the Pacers this season. You can always count on him defending, but sometimes, like when he's open, you're like, take the shot when he's open. But he's been aggressive on the offensive end lately for the Indiana Pacers. What does Neesmith bring, uh, both offensively and defensively, now to the Pacers now that he's been inserted inside the starting lineup?
1: Yeah, the the new thing he's added to his game this year is ball handling. Right with the Celtics, it was mostly mostly catch. It's not that he wasn't dribbling much at all, but you know, that's been a new thing for him is putting the ball on the floor once or twice, and it hasn't always gone well, but that added dimension does kind of change the way he's defended, change what he's allowed to and asked to do, and Rick Carlisle's pretty good about this. You know, If he puts you in the game, you know he trusts you to shoot and dribble and make decisions. right? He wouldn't put you out there in situations where he doesn't trust you to do those things, so the fact that he is now starting Neesmith at the force kind of a ringing endorsement of his uh, offensive added skills this year, and he's been kind of hot shooting the ball since they got back home from their long road trip and adding those skills has certainly helped them on that end of the forfeit and all he needs to do when he plays with, you know, Nembard's creation and Albert's creation and Turner screening is, you know, one dribble moves and take the open shot or move the ball immediately or cut at the right times. Right. Stuff that is, you know, you, you'll get the ball if you're open on this Pacers team. And he's done a really good job fitting in with that group so far, which has been an impressive part of their, you know, last couple of games that they changed the starting five and both B Smith and Smith have looked good in a new role and, now, Neesmith, the, uh, obviously the shot hasn't been there all year. It's still a 53% true shooting, but his defense and offense combined have both kind of been a little bit above the expectation I had for him, and I think the Pacers are happy that they got a wing in that Brogdon trade that can help them kind of right away.
2: Tony, we were talking about the five-game stretch that's coming up, Cleveland, New York, and then three on the road, Boston, Miami, and New Orleans. That's three straight on Christmas week. Is that a three-and-two, five-game stretch possibly for this team? Can they do it?
1: Uh, it's going to be tough, right? The Knicks, who I have this perception of not being the best team this year, have, have won five in a row. They're quietly sixth in the Eastern Conference, right? The Celtics look really good. The Cavaliers look really good. Going three and two in that stretch would be very, very impressive, you know, from the Pacers. who and They've done a really good job responding to, uh, you know, their losses recently, but they haven't won two games in a row since, I think, November 21st and 19th, and both of those wins were against orlando so going against the top of the west and top of the east the team that just beat them third in the east and a team on a five game win streak that's a tough stretch uh certainly even though that they could be better than some of those teams we'll see how it ultimately settles out i think they can beat cleveland at their best i think they can beat the knicks right they've already beaten the pelicans and the heat so it's very possible they do you know three and two two and three in that stretch but it's gonna be tough you know teams have kind of figured out ways they can defend Halburn and mather and better and strategies that work better against the Pacers and we'll we'll see how they settle in against these teams especially the Heat who really figured out how to slow the Pacers.
0: Tony to build off of that in that same vein Brent and I were talking earlier and we've done this a couple times this week and I know Pacers fans have these same conversations is what the future is going to hold it's been a question I feel bad for him because I like him a lot for the last five years what the future is going to hold for Miles Turner how much does this stretch and really the next two to three weeks of the season? If it all moved the needle for you on the front office's decision making for if they want to try to keep Turner around, maybe extend him in the offseason, or if this is a team that's going to wind up dealing just Turner for this exercise uh, before the deadline.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, right? Today's the unofficial start of trade murmur season, whatever you want to call it, since many guys who signed contracts in the offseason can now be traded in the league. And, And Turner's going to be the name most talked about for the Pacers and he always has been right. Pretty much since Sabonis started his ascent in 2017, 18 and it's about, or the year after, following, whenever it was, you know, Turner's been, been talked about a lot. Can this two center pairing work? Should they move him? Should they move this other guy? And then, you know, even last year that there were murmurs about a trade before he got hurt, This off season again, this year, like it, it keeps popping up. But to me, his play is obviously important, right? Him being good is crucial to his future in the league and with the Pacers and spit with Halliburn and Mather and is, of course, very important. But the most important part is his contract, right? No matter how much, how good this goes, unless the Pacers feel like they're going to win a postseason series this year, right? The, the big consideration, and Miles even said this himself on the Woj Pod, is his contract expires after this season, right? And they They would lose him for nothing if he signs with a different team as a free agent this summer. And, and that's a big risk. And even Turner said, like, that would look bad for them if that ends up happening. And he is extension eligible right now. I'm sure the Pacers would love to have discussions with him if he's open to it. But if, if he doesn't agree or doesn't want to and he wants to hit free agency, then you know it, it's a really big risk for the Pacers to hold on to him up to that point. So even if he's playing well and fits really well, they almost have to explore the market just given his contract situation, right? They traded Oladipo when they were, I think, 8-3 and three or 8-4 and four at the start of you know, the 2020-21 season because a great opportunity opened up and Oladipo was on an expiring contract and wouldn't commit to an extension, right? We'll see where the parallels in this situation end up being. But I think with Turner, yeah, if he plays well, that's obviously great for the Pacers in terms of what they consider with his future. But I think that a lot of the, the situation has kind of already been decided just by his contract status.
0: If you were moving him, if you're putting on the front office hat, what's more important to you with the state of the franchise right now, getting draft capital back or, or getting – players under team control back
1: Yeah, players under team control has been with this front office has loves to prioritize in the past you know lavert sabonis oladipo warren all the big trades that they make that have worked out really well for them have kind of fit that vein even <laughs> Neesmith right now right, I, right. and they ended up getting jalen smith for control but all these guys a lot of the guys they end up trading for fit that mold and right now is a really interesting time though because they have a lot of young players already so adding more in is really hard right it's going to be tricky for them to even navigate the upcoming drafts when they have three first-round picks. How are they going to fit three more young players into the ecosystem and rotation that they already have? They, they, they might not be able to at all. So there is some good arguments for both where, you know, like not far away, but in the future picks might have more value to them because they can you know, flip it over the time until that draft comes or they could use it farther off in the future when you know, their team situation is a little more crystal clear and they don't have a ton of draft capital already in tow. But Kevin Pritchard's always loved to target those young, under-contracts-for-a-long-time kind of players. So I think there's a good argument for both. The only thing I think they should avoid, given that they already have a bunch, three first-round picks next year, is really, really soon upcoming first-round picks because their team situation doesn't really allow for anyone they draft incoming drafts to have a big role on this team really soon
0: last question for you tony you and i are both indiana alums let's say for the sake of argument jalen hood Shafino <laughs> plays on saturday what do you give the hoosiers chances wise at the fog against kansas
1: uh, and i was bummed you couldn't play against arizona yeah. they, they had some good stretches there race race hitting those threes obviously maybe not something to expect every game but m- maybe gave me some false hope in that game but yeah i think they, they've got a better shot if he plays obviously but he just looks really good man Brady yeah. Dixon play and so i i don't know if i'd give them more than a you know 40 35% chance of winning that one but if they have him they certainly have a much better chance than if they don't as we've seen recently
0: He is Tony Heist you can find his work at SI Pacers Forbes as well uh Locked on Pacers he uh, does a great job for the next hoops covering the Indiana Fever uh as well as wthr.com for some of his work Tony anything i'm missing there
1: You got it all. You got it all.
0: Appreciate you always making time for us, Tony,
2: and I'm sure we'll talk to you down the line.
1: You got it. Thanks, guys.
2: I'll tell you what. When you were on the bus in second grade during our generation, this was banging on the radio. Heck of a time. (laughs) Heck of a time. Brendan King with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison's on the ones and twos. Big matchup. At Hinkle on Saturday night, 7 o'clock, the number three Connecticut Huskies, a rematch of the 2011 National Championship game. Here to break it down is the radio analyst on the Butler Bulldogs radio network, along with the man himself, Mark Minner. It is Nick Gardner. Nick, it's BK. Great to catch up, and that should be a fun one at Hinkle on Saturday night.
3: Yeah, hey BK. How you doing, man? Um, It it should be. It's it's quite the opener for the dogs, obviously, and Um, UConn has been impressive thus far. It's it's certainly tuned enough to be a fantastic Saturday night at Hinkle Fieldhouse. What a Big East opener for them.
0: Nick, it's Jimmy. Uh, Bulldogs, winners of four in a row. Uh, That all started in the Big East Big 12 battle with that win against Kansas State. Sustained a lot of runs uh, from Kansas State in that game before ultimately pulling away. And then have taken care of business uh, over these tests against the likes of Tennessee Tech, Yale. And on the road at Cal, uh, what's been your biggest takeaway from this four-game streak for the Dogs, and how can they carry it in Field Fieldhouse against UConn?
3: Well, I think, number one, you're, um, just the... The fact that Coach Mata has been able to kind of ride the same guys, right? He's been playing basically six guys, maybe seven at times. Miles Tate has been out. So really haven't been able to have that backup point guard. And just been impressive with those guys, their ability to stay on the floor. And obviously, I think the importance of Manny Bates. He's huge in every game. uh, But his ability to hold things down on the interior, both offensively and defensively, Uh, he's been as consistent uh, of a player for Coach Mata. Um, and I think that role is kind of amplified when you look at the matchup with UConn. But um, Manny Bates, just his shot-blocking ability and the ability to get him the basketball on the block and feel really good about the shot you're going to get um, has been impressive. And I think over that, you know, those four games Jimmy mentioned, uh, we haven't seen kind of those lulls or those lapses um, where you go five, six minutes without a field goal. And, and if you did have them, you were able to counter them with getting stops. And so the consistency... Uh, of play has has really gotten there, and it's gotten better over this four-game stretch, that's for sure.
2: Nick, you brought up the guy I wanted to talk about, and that's Manny Bates. Ever since he dropped that double-double in his first game as a Bulldog, I think everybody realized what this guy can do. But, Nick, I think he's also been the type of player that's been on Butler fans' wish list for a long, long time. A guy that can defend like that in the post, a guy that he can just toss the ball to, and it's almost automatic when he backs down a guy. Just how lethal is that going to be, you think, for the offense to be able to throw it down to Manny when they get healthy, when you get a guy like Ali Ali back, when you get a guy like Jalen Thomas that can back him up if he gets in the foul trouble? I mean, this offense should be running on all cylinders if and when they get healthy.
3: Well, there's no doubt. Um, You know, I think you've seen... And, and it's been a little bit of an adjustment, right, to have a, such a big presence in there. You know, guys like Chuck Harris and Jaden Taylor and Eric Hunter Jr., well, maybe not Eric as much because he was coming into a new situation. But those guys aren't necessarily used to having that big body in there and, and still being able to find driving angles. Certainly it's opened up the three-point shooting. You look at the numbers, uh, just the raw numbers. Uh, those guys are shooting the basketball much better. And I, I think you're hard-pressed not to say that Manny Bates' presence hasn't affected the quality of those looks. Uh, but I think they've evolved a little bit as far as figuring out, look, when, when, when to take those threes when they're open because of the presence that Manny has on the interior. And then also when to attack those closeouts, um, because of Manny's ability to score, he has been seeing some double teams. You've seen them. They've they've doubled with guys on the baseline side. They've doubled from different areas to try to get the basketball out of his hands. And that's another area that Manny's really impressed me. He's, uh, so many times those big guys get a touch and they're not giving it up no matter what coverage they see. Whether it's the right play or not, um, they're, they're going to go ahead and go to work. And with Manny, he just reads and reacts, stays really calm. His demeanor is even keeled. Um, and he's going to make the right basketball play to get his team the best shot. And I think you're seeing the quality of those looks have been much better. And you would expect him to continue to do that, as you said, with the return of some of those, those healthy bodies down the line. Uh, but there's no doubt it's opened things up on the perimeter for both driving angles, uh, for shooting, um, and it's created rotations because of uh, of the fact that he's warranted a double-team at times. Nick,
0: this is a heck of a Big East opener for the dogs. So we, we all know about Hinkle Magic. We know some special things can happen in that building. But obviously, welcome in the third-ranked team in the country in UConn. And this is a Butler team underneath Coach Mata that is clearly hungry to get back to the NCAA tournament. We want the win. You want a signature win, of course, on the resume. But in terms of a barometer check at this point in the season against a top five team in UConn, what do you need to see from the dogs against the Huskies that would lead you to assume a promising Big East season is to unfold for Butler this year?
3: Yeah, I think you know. First, of obviously, like you said, Jimmy, you want you want to get the win. But I think more what what I would do is kind of compare it uh to some of the other high level opponents that you faced. And and really you go back to this quality, you probably have to go back and say that game against Tennessee down in the Bahamas where look, you were you were right there, you were playing tough, you were playing stout for, you know, twenty three, twenty five minutes, um, and then they go on a big seventeen one run and kind of stretch it out. You just didn't have that consistent play. And that's something that I mentioned earlier that is has has gotten better since that trip. Uh, you've done it against some other high major opponents. You've been able to have some more complete games. And so can you extend that complete play uh, to a little bit longer stretch? Can you do it for 40? Um, can you do it for longer stretches and not have that lull? And, and in turn, does that set you up to, to put you in, in position to win that game late? So I, I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing, um, you know, this is really going to be the test. You talk, We talk about Manny Bates' impact. He, he's not going to have a much tougher challenge. Uh, throughout Big East play, than he ha- he's going to have against this UConn front line. So can you know can can you kind of withstand with the shorter rotation playing against a deeper, bigger opponent in UConn that's going to throw some multiple bodies at, at, at your five or six guys that you're kind of riding throughout. So that those are kind of the key points to look at. Uh, but boy, the game within the game, Sunago versus Manny Bates, is going to be a heck of a battle to watch.
2: Absolutely, Nick Gardner, the radio analyst for Butler Basketball, with us on the guest line, brought to you by The Mower Shop and Fishers and TheMowerShop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Nick, the Thad Mata effect. I'm a Butler season ticket holder, so I'm at practically every game. Just to hear the ovation that Thad gets every time his name is introduced by Dave Peach, I I think is awesome. It's great that Thad is home. But when it comes to a coaching perspective, is there anything... Nick, in particular, you think he has brought to the table most for this team and what they do that maybe has been missing in recent years?
3: Um, that's a good question. I think I think the way that, the thing that's unique, I would say about Coach Mott is he he has a way of instilling a confidence in his guys with his belief in them um, that they can go play with that freedom and, and kind of play really loose and. I think many times what he's done is he's kind of kept it really simple. Um, he, he wants to play faster. Um, he's obviously, he's, he's kind of shortened that rotation. He's got a group of guys that he likes to go with and, and feels good about. Um, so I think in many ways what he's done is just kind of simplify things, taking away uh, maybe some of uh, the thought and say, hey, just trust what you do, believe in what, what you do and the work you put in, and go out there and play and, and play to win. And so, um, you know, it's 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 hard to put a finger on it exactly, but it's it's one where I just think his ability to instill that confidence and belief in his guys, um, where it's like, yes, the X's and the O's matter. Um, that stuff is important. The technique, you know, the technical aspect of how you're going to, you know, cover certain actions is important, and you've got to have a certain baseline with that. But, but what he's done is say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and keep it really simple for you, and, and we're going to let you go play and play aggressive and play fast and and, and trust kind of the work that we put in. I think that's been been a a neat thing to see. And I think you're seeing kind of the production of some of those guys take off uh, under that style of coaching.
0: Nick, they referenced this on the FS1 broadcast against Kansas State. I know uh, the Indy Star has an article out about him as well. But what's it been like uh, for Coach Mata's staff and for the players on this roster to have a figure like Greg Oden there?
3: Uh, it's I mean, you talk about what a resource, right? This is a guy who has experienced a lot and it's not only within the field of play, it's it's a lot of the stuff outside of it. Um and, and look, it's not like like those guys are able to kind of work in on the court more with some of the, the, the skill work and whatnot. So, um, you know, number one you're having to, to kinda of work against and finish over a guy of that size and stature and and obviously he's got some ability with his pass. Um but I tell you what, Greg Oden is one of the nicest human beings you could ever come across. Um, he's as humble as they come. Uh, he's a guy who's fantastic to pick, pick his brain and, and just learn about some things. You know, people forget this guy. He played, obviously went to the Trailblazers and whatnot, but he had some time down in Miami with LeBron and D Wade and Bosch when they were down there in their last year. So he's got some fantastic tales and stories from his time. But um, just a guy who has been and seen a lot of things and played in a lot of big games. And then you compound that with with just his demeanor and the type of guy he is. He's a fantastic resource for those guys to have, and and it's been a, it's been really fun getting to know him. Uh, he's a fantastic guy, and, and he's got a lot to share that can help uh, guys individually and the program as a whole.
2: Nick, I want to get back to something we were discussing earlier: and Butler getting hopefully more healthy as we go along after Christmas. Jalen Thomas still has not played. Aliyah Lee, John Michael Malloy has been on the shelf. You mentioned Miles Tate. Uh, Specifically, the guys like Thomas... And Ali, I think we saw it with Bo Hodges that it, it can be difficult for any player to just ramp up and go right in the Big East play and expected to compete in such a high-pressure environment in these road games. I mean, the second Big East game, for goodness sakes, Nick, is at Creighton, and, and we know mm-hmm. how tough it is to play there. But uh, as a former player, how difficult is it maybe if you're dealing with an injury to just be expected to jump into conference play if you're in a Ali-, Ali or Thomas, and, and you're expected to perform and just jump in and rattle with the big boys down low?
3: it it is it's difficult because there's no way around it I mean you you know you're talking about a group um where roles you know you've you've kind of started to etch your role out you know now that you're 11 games into a season um so it's not as easy as just plug and play because um look things change guys bring different dynamics to the to the court guys bring different um different aspects to the lineup and so it's difficult ideally, you'd like them to have some time to maybe work themselves back in, but at the same time i, I think you trust that those guys are good players um they've been studying you know Jalen Thomas is a guy who's um, he's always he he's taken those mental reps, you can tell even though he hasn't been as active, he's in there, so hopefully it doesn't take him as long to get caught up to speed on on some of the technical aspects of it and and, and, and game planning aspects um, but you've got to still rely on their skill because um, wh- whether you want time or not, you just don't have it right now. And those guys are probably going to be needed. It's, it's, you're going to be hard-pressed to go through a Big East season and not think at some point along the way you're going to have to go a little deeper into that bench because of foul trouble, availability, whatever it may be. Um, and so it is going to be difficult, but I think you rely on the skills of those guys, Brendan. And and in doing so, there's just frankly a need um, because it, all the, it's like – the injuries have hit one area on this team. And so uh, you really don't have the luxury of having that time to, to kind of integrate them. You've got to trust that they've been doing their mental reps and just kind of bring them along as you can. Uh, but it certainly is going to be a challenge, as you mentioned with these first two uh, big East openers, they don't get much tougher than that unless you had to go to Yukon, right. And didn't <laughs> have them coming to ankle. So um, you're going to have to just kind of throw them throw feet to the fire right away. And the good part is, you know, those guys, they aren't freshmen coming right back. They do have some experience at this level. They just don't have that experience with this group of guys.
0: Nick, the Bulldogs just giving up uh, 25%, give or take, uh, from three-point range to opponents. Uh, that's over the last eight. Is that something that is sustainable against a team like UConn and over the course of, of the meat of Big East play? And if so, uh, how do they bottle it up and put it together against UConn on, uh, this weekend?
3: Um, I think it is I don't know if it's sustainable at that level because I do think um, once you get into the Big East there there may be a little trade-off right like can you continue to defend the three-point arc at that rate without just giving up easy two-point shots because you know typically you know the bigs aren't going to be as good in some of the you know the mid-major the low-major leagues and so it's it's even more difficult for some of those teams to sustain success without making threes. At the Big East level, Adama Sanogo can probably go get you 30 or 35 from two if he needs to, right? So, so you've got to kind of toe that line a little bit. Um, but I would say that is an area, look, you look at college basketball guys in general, you're hard-pressed to find anybody that can win without making threes. I don't care what your, your makeup is on your roster. I don't care if you're heavily relying on them or not. When you just have to survive off twos and ones from the free throw line, it is hard to close out games over a 40-minute period. In doing so, you need that release and that efficiency of making a few threes in there. So, um, I think anytime you can try to choke guys off or choke opponents off from that three-point line, you're gonna you're gonna put yourself in a better spot. Uh, you just can't do so uh, by risking really, really easy twos. You're still gonna make them earn those twos while you're protecting that three-point R.
2: Nick Gardner, the radio analyst for Butler Basketball with us. Nick, this is my last one. Just the state of the Big East now. It's been pretty unique and pretty entertaining to watch all the coaching changes and the fresh faces in the Big East this year. I mean, you think about Thad here at Butler, you think about Sean Miller back at Xavier, Shaheen Holloway at Seton Hall, Kyle Neptune succeeding Jay Wright at Villanova. And then you pair that with, you know, the classics like Ed Cooley at Providence and Greg McDermott still at Creighton. I mean, I'm still getting used to seeing Shaka Smart on the sidelines at Marquette. Nick, just the state of the Big East right now—it seems like the future is bright. From not only a recruiting perspective, but you're going to see some pretty good ball games down the road.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know it's a little unique. I think in years past, it was kind of everybody uh, was tipping their cap to Villanova and saying, "All right, who who can kind of challenge them or 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 come in behind them to try and get to the top of that league?" And now it's maybe a little more wide open. Um, UConn certainly looks really good. Um, off the start, Creighton had a great start. They've come back down a little bit. They played a tough schedule certainly, but you know, they lost, I think five straight now after their loss at Arizona state earlier this week. Um, so once again, it, it, it's probably going to be all bunched up right in the middle. And, and so who can go get, who can go win a game at Creighton? Um, who can go in to, to Providence and beat Ed Cooley's team? Like those are the games that could separate you in the league. and And we've seen it countless times. Where, you know, one win can jump you up two, three, four places in seeding by separating yourself from a group and kind of in that middle of that pack in that four to eight range or that three to seven range. And so um, I think it's going to come down to one game here or there. But But the thing that, again, over these last four games, Butler has shown an ability to improve on their consistency you know, they've been able to, to, to kind of check check each box and stack up those improvements on top of each other. And although Cal wasn't, um, you know, they haven't gotten a win this year, to be able to prove that you can travel and go play your game on the road, I thought that was a big step for Butler, and that's absolutely going to be the separator here in Big East. play. who can travel, who can go on the road, play their game, get some victories away from their home building, I think that can separate you in the standing and that can be the difference between a top half or about a half finish.
2: Nick Gardner, the radio analyst for Butler Basketball. Him and Mark Minner make a terrific team. Nick, hope you and Mark have a great call on Saturday. I will see you there. And uh, let's see if the Dogs can get it done.
3: Sounds good. Thanks
2: for having me on, fellas. Have a good one. Thanks, Nick. You That's too, Nick. Nick Gardner, the radio analyst for Butler Basketball. And the guest line brought to you by The Mower Shop and Fishers and the MowerShop.com for all your blowers, commercial, and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Now pitching for the Yankees, number 42, Mariano Rivera. I'll tell you what. Enter Sandman from Eddie Garrison only comes out for the highest praises of guests. And making his debut... Uh, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. We are glad to have him. My guy from CBS Sports, Tom Lemming, college football insider, college football recruiting expert, and the publisher of what I have in my hands right now, Tom Lemming's Prep Football Report. Y'all on the YouTube chat can see this. This is probably the most comprehensive recruiting football book in the country. Here in Indiana, we have... Uh, the Indiana Football Digest, which is put together by the great Paul Condry, but this is a national perspective of everything you need to know, and the guy that writes it every summer, again, is Tom Lemming from CBS Sports, joining us on the Hotline, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and the themowershop.com. Tom, it's Brendan, great to chat, my friend, and I know you are in the state of Mississippi right now, after uh, your friend of many years, Mike Leach, passed away, so, Tom, I just want to give you the floor right now, and, um, you know, what has this week been like for you, and you, as you remember. Remember your friend?
4: Well, I, I met him. Uh, we had the same agent, and uh, the New York Times had done a story, a story on him one week and a story on me next week. And he wanted uh, to talk to me. And our agent, uh, Gary O'Hagan, set us up. This is back around 2000, or right when he took the job at Texas Tech. And we've stayed close friends ever since. And he was an amazing guy. It just uh, He could speak on any subject, he was that intelligent. and Witty and funny, and just a great guy to be with. No matter what I did when I showed up, I filmed with him in Lubbock, and also I filmed with him in uh, Pullman, Washington, and just this past year in Starkville, Mississippi. And no matter what we talked about, we always had to bring the subject around to football because he'd rather speak on any other subject but football. (laughs) And I'm sort of the same way. And he just a wonderful guy. Uh, Quick. When we did it in Lubbock years ago, I had just filmed with Pete Carroll, and I was driving to Lubbock, and our producer flew with the camera crew, and he was desperate to get a hold of Coach Leach. He couldn't reach him for two days, and I called uh, Coach Leach to say, Coach, our producer trying to reach you because we're filming in the morning, and he got back to me he said, I'm so sorry. Uh, my wife and I were down in Marva, Texas, looking at UFO lights all night. <laughs> so, just a different kind of a guy. And... Uh, when we first got in the car to go film, he, instead of doing football, he takes us 45 mile, uh, miles south of Lubbock to O'Donnell, Texas, to watch a museum, uh, see a museum. There was based on uh, Dan Blocker, who was a uh, star of the TV show Bonanza. A lot of young people don't, probably don't know who he was, but he's a big star. And, again, we did that. Then the Buddy Holly Museum, and that producer was pulling his hair out saying, we, does he know this is a football show and that we got to talk football? And eventually we did get around to football, but not before talking about pirates and JFK uh, conspiracies and the Chicago mob. He was uh, just a wonderful guy to speak to.
0: Tom, it's Jimmy. In that same vein, uh, and, and those were both great right there, whether it's yours or whether it's one that you've heard uh, from secondhand accounts, what is your favorite either story or, or ism uh, from Coach Leach over the years?
4: Well, you know, with him, it's um, we were mainly uh, just off-the-wall kind of stuff. He's big into the Chicago mob. Uh, this story's really good. It only happened a couple of years ago when he was at uh, WSU. He all of a sudden calls me on a Monday and he says, hey, I was watching, I think, the Reels channel about so-and-so with the Chicago mob and this and that. Could you check up on it and see if the story's good? That isn't just a few days before they start their season and they're playing Eastern Washington. So... I get back to his uh, right-hand man, Dave Emmerich, on Wednesday, and he said, tell Coach that this guy that Joe Pesci played and is supposed to be a representative of a guy from the Chicago mob, isn't that? And his right-hand man goes, Coach is calling you on that? we got to play Eastern Washington in two days. He goes, what are you worried about? And guess what? They lost to Eastern Washington, and then they win their next ten games. Uh, And that was – Coach Leach, he was he was eclectic when it came to subjects and uh, speaking on anything. He could talk on any subject, and I don't think football was his number one thing. He just said he was so great at it, that. Obviously, he was in demand everywhere. Probably the the best offensive mind in college football.
2: Yeah, Tom, last thing on Coach Leach. When it comes to his legacy and what he started, his coaching tree, that has been widely discussed, who has all learned under Mike Leach. What do you think people are going to remember most when it comes down to it and, um, you know, Coach Leach's career?
4: I think if you're a football fan, it's about how great he was no matter where he went. People forget that he won at Texas Tech when it's very difficult to win, and they really haven't done it since on a consistent basis. He graduated everybody he led the uh, conference uh, the 10 years at Texas Tech every year and graduating as players that's something that in football you don't really talk about everybody's worried about wins and losses but he had a great record then he goes to Washington State which is even tougher to, to recruit at because your surrounding states are Idaho and Montana and Wyoming so he won at those two very difficult places, and even in the Southeast Conference, which is the number one conference in the country when it comes to talent. You know, he wasn't the greatest recruiter, but he still won and had a winning record because he's a great coach. If he had the talent that Georgia or Alabama had, he never would have lost a game. He was that good of a coach. So he just... Uh, so I think they're going to remember him. On two, people that knew him like I did. You remember him just for his great sense of humor and his ability to speak on any subject and his personality. I never. Here's another thing. I went and filmed with him last November in Starkville. We brought our camera crew on a Sunday afternoon. Less than 24 hours before that, he had lost a game on a short field goal. If they kicked it with 20-something yards, they would have won. They missed it. But when I saw him the next day, most other coaches would have been banging their head on the wall and upset and couldn't talk. He didn't even seem like he was that concerned. He was already out to the next game and doing a great job on our interview. We spent a couple hours there with him. And I don't think he, he was the guy that was, in my opinion, a genius when it came to offensive football, but also a guy that didn't uh, take it hard. I think his family and his friends and uh, his other hobbies meant as much or more than football did to him. And that's very unusual when you're talking about a, a head football coach, particularly at such a high-profile school. Tom, as mentioned,
2: you are a nationwide college football reporter, recruiting analyst for CBS Sports. Your work takes you all across the country. We met in South Bend this summer when you were covering uh, Notre Dame Media Day, got some lunch, you came to the South Bend Cubs Stadium too, met a couple of the boys, which was awesome. But locally here in Indy right now, Tom, the big conversation is what the Purdue Boilermakers just did, hiring Ryan Walters as their new head coach, coming over after being the Illinois defensive coordinator. Tom, just your thoughts on Purdue making that hire after they went to the Big Ten champions, game, and Jeff Brom goes to Louisville.
4: I think it's a great hire. Uh, Jeff Brom was a good coach, but he was not a great recruiter. He was all right, but not a great recruiter. And I think Ryan's going to be a great recruiter. I was just talking with Barry Odom, who's now the new head coach at UNLV, but they work together at Missouri, and he was saying what a great recruiter he is. And I could see that just this year at Illinois, where he got the attention of a lot of the top defensive players. And before that, Illinois never got the attention of anyone. <laughs> they weren't really considered a player when it came to any of the big-time ball players. but I think he did a great job, and I think what Purdue needs is a great recruiter because Tom can recruit at Indiana, and obviously Notre Dame recruits itself, but Notre Dame's got Marcus Freeman, now one of the great recruiters nationally, so he's got to compete with them. He's got to compete in the Big Ten, which is becoming more and more competitive, and it will even more so with USC and UCLA Gradually working their way in. So I think Purdue got themselves the right guy. And I think give them a couple of years to recruit, and I think you're going to see Purdue get right up there with some of the big boys.
0: Tom, with the likes of NIL and the transfer portal. How difficult can it be to navigate uh, for a first-year head coach uh, like Coach Walters and how important it is it to hit the ground running uh, once you know we have all the, the press conferences done and all that's taken care of, but now it's time to get to work and hopefully stabilize a roster uh, for next season?
4: Well, signing day a, is in, a, in less than a week, so it's going to be difficult for this year. So you can't really – hopefully you can hang on to some of the guys they've had. But I look for him to have an outstanding year next year. At this time next year, I think people will be talking about what a good job Purdue did because he'll hit the ground running, and he'll hit the ground running for the 2024 class. Fortunately, with the NIL, it's not as bad. If you're in the Southeast Conference and just starting out there, that's got to be awfully tough because they're all over that NIL. But the Big Ten, a little bit different besides Ohio State, which seems to be right now. They, they seem like a Southeast Conference program in the Big Ten. But the rest of them, I think Purdue. you know, I think it'll be a pretty even ground with the rest of the teams in the conference. Uh, You do have to get a um, situation where you do have some NIL money. Everyone's got to do that and get a, and and sort of have a game plan. And I think Purdue did it uh, under Braum. And I think uh, Ryan will do it even more so because they know how important it is right now. So the NCAA, you know, gets ahead of the situation. It's going to be, sort of like the wild west when i started in this business back in the late 70s the southwest conference was doing all this kind of stuff and a lot of it is under the table a lot of it is over the table and uh, until everybody gets a hold of it and the NCA maybe sets some ground rules it's still going to be the wild west and fortunately the big Ten's not nearly as bad as uh, uh, the southeast conference is at this stage
2: Tommy, took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say the Wild West when UCLA and USC joined the Big Ten and Texas and Oklahoma end up going to the SEC. How are programs like the Purdue's, like the Indiana's, that maybe already lose recruiting battles to teams around them going to be impacted by these monstrous and historic schools joining the likes of Big Ten and SEC-style play?
4: It's going to be difficult, Purdue, Indiana, where there isn't a whole lot of talent. There's some talent but basically – in the Indianapolis area, but if Notre Dame or Ohio State, they normally get the players, the great ones. Um, but I, you got to look at it with a positive uh, spin. Uh, say, hey, we got USC and UCLA coming in. That means we could go out to Los Angeles, the best part of the country when it comes to football talent, Southern California, and start recruiting players there because now we got two of their own schools in our own conference. You got to always spin it positively, even though it could be difficult. Um, when it comes to going against power, especially USC, which is a national power and it's been national power for 75 years, so I think you've got to um, spin it positively. And and you got you know you've got Rutgers up in New Jersey, so you can hit New Jersey real hard. You got Maryland, which is another real good state. You just got to expand your recruiting reach. Uh, when you're Purdue in Indiana, which they've done in the past, but I think even more so now when you got a national uh, program, you're going from coast to coast. You go from New Jersey to California. Now you got teams in your own conference. So you use it on a positive level, and I think if Purdue's got the right frame of mind, and you know Ryan does, I think things are going to be working out great for Purdue. I worry a little bit more about Indiana than I would Purdue. Uh, but, again, Tom Allen's done a good job recruiting, but he's going to have to ex- – their reach is going to have to be uh, extended also um, when I started in this business 44 years ago Notre Dame and possibly UCLA were the only two national teams almost everyone else recruited within a 300 mile radius now everyone's got to be a national team if you want to compete and I think, I think Purdue understands that and uh, I think they'll be ready
0: Tom Lemming, nice enough to take some time with us today via the Mower Shop and Fishers hotline and themotorshop.com. You can find all of your residential and commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, repairs, services, and so much more at the Mower Shop and Fishers and Motorshop.com. You can follow Tom on Twitter at LemmingReport. Tom, I noticed earlier this month you had an opportunity to talk with one of the top players in the state of Indiana, this past football season and the commit to Notre Dame at linebacker in Drake Bowen of Andrean high school. Uh, What was your interaction uh, like with the senior?
4: Well, I do the Butkus award. So I had a lot of interaction with him. We actually gave it to him, but I'll do the, um, I when I drive around the country every year, it's 15 years now. Dick Butkus asked me to do his high school Butkus award, first one i gave it to his man tight notre dame guy now it's drake bowen who had a phenomenal year in Maryville. they play up too because it's a um, smaller school but they play some of the better schools in indiana and on offense and on defense but defense is where i was more concerned since it was the butkus award and he was phenomenal and um he was one of the five finalists i also gave it to anthony hill Texas, but he only played six games, so it came down to five guys, and Drake got the award last week and well-deserved, and he kind of reminds me of some of the um, NFL linebackers you see. This guy's got great speed to the ball. He's a a terrific all-around athlete. He's one of the best baseball players in the state of Indiana also, so Notre Dame's getting themselves quite an athlete, a good student, and a great kid, too. He's easy to talk to, and when Butkus asked me when I picked the award or the nominations, Make sure they're good character, and if not, then we don't want them as a Butkus Award winner. And Drake Bowen's got great character, so he's, uh, he'll represent the award well.
2: Tom, let's talk about the Irish in South Bend. Marcus Freeman goes into year two, Drew Pine transferring, Tyler Buckner, I guess the returning de facto quarterback. But, Tom, when it comes to getting a transfer at QB for Notre Dame, do you think Marcus Freeman's the type of guy that would go after one of the A-lister type guys out there, like a JT Daniels, like a DJ Uaugole, or would you think Freeman would be the guy to find more like a Jack Cohn type guy that maybe can split QB duties?
4: Well, I think they. Uh, I think that's the big question for Notre Dame. They're bringing in a lot of talent. Marcus Freeman has proven to be one of the premier, one of the top five recruiters in the country. However, they've not been able to do with quarterbacks. I can't think of the last quarterback who sustained a career since maybe Steve Berline, who came out in the, uh, I think around '85. <laughs> so they haven't had a great quarterback. I mean, Brady Quinn played a little bit, Jimmy Clausen, but no one that sustained a career. So Notre Dame suffered a lot by not going after the great quarterbacks or at least developing quarterbacks. They got a guy named Kenny Mincy coming in this year and C.J. Carr the next year, but right. it's going to take them a while. So that it's, I think it's imperative that they bring in a Hudson Card from Texas or um, if what's the Wake Forest quarterback leaves, go after him. But bring in a guy that that's a proven quarterback because they have not done a good job at developing quarterbacks at Notre Dame. And I think that's been their Achilles' heel when it comes to making it as one of the premier programs in the country. Because they're bringing a great offensive lineman, they got a couple of uh, this uh, Jeremiah Love running back coming in next year. They may lose another running back, Lamar, out of uh, the Seattle area he may wind up switching to Oregon. They got four very good wide receivers coming in. They got great linebackers, great DBs. They don't have great defensive linemen coming in they got good ones, but not great ones. And they don't have yet that great quarterback that could bring them to the promised land. And for Notre Dame fans, that's a national title. Anything short of that means that they probably fell a little short of their their goal. But I do think if they get an athletic quarterback who can run and throw, which they haven't had a guy that can do both at a Heisman rate, if they can get a quarterback like that, then Notre Dame could win a national title.
0: Tom, you mentioned uh, signing day upcoming here next week and then with both the transfer portal being active and different decisions being made with bowl season underway. I was wondering if you could walk us through kind of your timeline of of what all you're tracking during this season on top of not just signing day, but uh, as we get into bowl season and we transition into the to long off season of, of fighting for transfer portal prospects and, and building things ready for both the spring game and then ultimately the fall next year.
4: You know, what I do is um, I'm on the road most of the time. When I'm not filming, I'm on the road. Right now I'm heading towards um, Texas. We're doing the Army game. There's a new U.S. Army game. It's going to be played in Crisco at the Cowboys facilities Saturday. Army's back in business. And then I'm, I'm hitting the top 100 underclassmen in Texas. I just left a defensive end here in Tulsa from NOAA, which is a homeschool uh, football team. And Notre Dame, by the way, Notre Dame offered their defensive end, the kid I just saw. And then um, I've worked my way. I drive all forty-eight states. I'll go to Hawaii every couple of years, and no need to go to Alaska so, <laughs> unless unless there's a great player, but there hasn't been one in years. And so I just stay on the road, and um, I enjoy it. You know, if you can see in my magazine. I use about 40 pages to write about my travels and uh, what I see around the country and what I hear from NIL stuff. And I knew A&M was going to have trouble this year just from what I heard last year where there was already grumblings with players on the team. They were... Uh, Offering a lot of uh, NIL money to freshmen that were coming in, but I think the rest of the guys on the team were getting upset. What I've been reading or hearing, which you know, usually where there's smoke, there's fire, and it turned out to be that way. A&M's got enormous amount of talent. There's no reason why they lose seven or eight games a year, except there had to be a lot of disgruntled players. And uh, I pick up stuff like that all the time when I'm driving around. And normally I could. predict what's going to be happening in the future just by the rumors I hear uh, during my travels. Tom, before we let you go,
2: I got to get your thoughts on what is going to be, now confirm, the 12-team playoff in just a couple years from now. One more year of the four-team playoff. Uh, 12 teams, I guess, does that help anybody most or does it hurt so more so the Blue
4: Bloods? I think it hurts the Blue Bloods because, you know, they, they were, you know, Alabama and Georgia seem like they're born in Clemson until this last year or two uh, in Ohio State. But I think it gives it, it brings more excitement. It's going to allow a lot more teams to uh, probably, you know, help them in recruiting and also promoting their own programs. So I think the, the fan excitement will be great because, you know, it, it, it had always been sort of um, centered around five or six teams only. So now you're going to have maybe 20 to 30 teams where a center around that could possibly be uh, involved in it. So I think it's going to be good for college football.
2: Tom, what's the next stop?
4: I'm, I'm, I'm actually driving towards uh, Millwood High School in Oklahoma City now. I've been in Mississippi and I've been in uh, uh, Arkansas yesterday. So now I'm heading towards uh, Oklahoma City. And then uh, We're doing the game Saturday in Frisco, Texas, and then I spend the rest of the week interviewing the top 100 underclassmen in the state
0: Tom do me a favor uh, because I can shout out my high school alma mater I will Uh, look out for Trevor Lauk of Ron Colley he's in that U.S. Army Bowl Uh, I know he'll be covering everybody there but uh, he uh, Trevor's
4: a good ball player he's an excellent kid real nice kid his grandfather was on the Notre Dame national title team in 1966 played with uh, Alan Page and a lot of the Hall of Famer type guys so he's got some history to him too
2: Culture runs deep. That is Tom Lemming from CBS Sports, national recruiting analyst. The guy is an encyclopedia on college football. We're happy to have him as the publisher as well of Tom Lemming's Prep Football Report. Uh, Tom, before you go, how can folks get their hands on a magazine?
4: You know, just go to, um, uh, it's at Lemming Report on Twitter, or just go um, to TomLemmingPrepFootball.com. And and get them that way uh, around there. But I wanted to say I really uh, I really enjoyed your broadcast with, uh, the Chicago, with the South Bend Cubs this year. I actually listened to them, uh, a lot of them. And, going, and I like that stadium in South Bend, too. That's really a nice – I go all – I love minor league. I'm a big Cubs fan, but I go to more minor league games than I do major league, and that's a nice stadium out there, and you do a great job.
2: Tom, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back in South Bend next year. You can stop by any
4: yeah, I appreciate it. Take all
2: care, right, guys. see you, Tom. Tom yeah. Lemming from CBS Sports with us on the guest line, brought to you by The Mower Shop and Fishers. And themowershop.com for all your snow blowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. The Voice of the Colts, Matt
0: Taylor. Nice enough to spend some time with us here on a Thursday. Matt, thank you as always. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. And for you, in your mind, As you look at this depth chart, as you look at Jeff Saturday naming Matt Ryan the starter and the belief in Matt Ryan, how much of that in your mind is that they truly do believe Matt Ryan gives them the best chance to win, like Coach Saturday said?
3: Yeah,
5: I I think that's there. I mean, that that part I I do buy into because, I mean, listen, you're, you're still trying. I mean, Jeff Saturday said that. You know, regardless of how these eight games uh, end up going, and, and regardless of what happens to him in terms of his future, uh, you know, being a head coach in the NFL or a, uh, an assistant coach or whatever he wants to do, you know, his name is going to be attached to these eight games. You know, like let's say this is it for him. You know, this is how he's going to be remembered potentially. You know, he doesn't want to be a guy that went one and eight or one and seven as the interim coach for the Colts for half a season. So he's still trying to win. And so he still thinks that his best shot to do so is with Matt Ryan as his quarterback. And this is, I I really got nothing to base this off of other than just like hunch or gut or just kind of like what I know about Matt Ryan in terms of him being a a competitor and and that that fiery nature that he has. But I, I I think he's mad. I really do. I, I think he's mad at himself because this is what everybody thinks about him now. You know, he's on a new team for the first time in 15 years, and he's getting up there. He's 37 years old, and you know, he's taking a bunch of sacks, and he leads the NFL in turnovers with 18, and he leads the NFL in picks with 13, and obviously set a franchise record in fumbles. So everybody thinks he's just, you know, this guy that can't hang on to the football, and, you know, he is sort of what he is right now at this stage in his career. So from that standpoint, I think he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, and wants to play better football, and wants to prove people wrong that he's not, you know, the Matt Ryan that that showed up the first, you know, eleven games of the season, um, you know, because he missed those two games with a shoulder. So you get what I'm saying. I, I think he wants to prove that he is more like the Matt Ryan of of old, where he's competing in NFC Championship games and going to Super Bowls and winning MVPs, and is trying to play a cleaner brand of football a more efficient brand of football and he's got four games to do it obviously the Colts have a lot of things to you know that that they need to go right or in their favor to at least have a shot at making the playoffs but I I don't think that's what this is about I think Matt Ryan is trying to prove to himself and to his team that he's a lot better than what he's put out on tape you know this first part of the season
2: Matey, it's BK and what we have seen this year, it was evident in the Kansas City win, it was evident in the Jacksonville game too at home, that when given the proper protection, Ryan is able to do some things. And and it's going to come down, I'm sure, as you prep for Saturday to a full team effort against a 10-win team. You're going to need to fire on all cylinders.
5: Without question, and you know, this this is a Vikings team. I'm sure you guys have talked about it. They're a, they're a great team. I mean, you don't win 10 games in this league on accident. And oh, by the way, they can clinch the NFC North with a win on Saturday against the Colts and, uh, you know, punch their ticket to the playoffs and host a playoff game. I mean, right now they sit at number two in the NFC if the postseason were to start today. Um, But I mean, I think they're just incredibly beatable. I do. I mean, right. I mean, they've won nine games this year by one score. And so you kind of have to look at it two ways. You have to, you know, commend them and, and congratulate them because that's what it's all about in the NFL. It's really hard to win in this league. It doesn't matter how you get them; you just got to get them because at the end of the day, you know, when you look back on this season five years from now, you're not going to say, "Well, that win doesn't count because you only beat you know whoever by three points." No, it doesn't matter, man. Just get wins, stack that good performances and wins on top of one another, and that'll get you in the dance. Um, so that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, well, they're incredibly beatable because despite those 10 wins and those close games, they've got a negative point differential on the season, right? They've been outscored by one point on the year because their defense is not very good. They've given up a bunch of yards. They're dead last in yards allowed and dead last in passing yards allowed. And their saving grace has been their offense and all of those playmakers that they have on that side of the ball. Plus their defense, the one thing that they do do well is they take the football away. They've got 20 takeaways, which has kind of been their saving grace, and that was kind of the model for the Colts last year on defense. You know, they did give up yards, but they got takeaways and made game-changing plays in the clutch, and the Vikings are doing that as well. So I think, to your point, it will take a a full-team effort for the Colts to win this football game, but I think there's a chance they can do that because it sets up well for the Colts to run the ball with Jonathan Taylor and to pass protect and and hopefully get you know Matt Ryan into a rhythm and take advantage of a you know Vikings defense that's given up over 300 yards passing in five straight games and over 400 yards of total offense in five straight games and both of both of those things are franchise records in a dubious nature.
0: The voice of the Colts, Matt Taylor, nice enough to take some time with us on the Motor Shop in Fishers hotline. Go to the Motor Shop and Fishers or the Shop dot com for all your residential commercial mower needs, well as snowblowers, services, and so much more at the motor shop and fishers and motorshop.com. Follow Matt on Twitter at May Take Colts. Matt, over the last couple of weeks, Colts have faced some of the tippy top of the NFC and have ultimately let things slip away late and into the fourth quarter with some collapses against the Eagles and the Cowboys. Uh, Is that as simple as as game planning a couple things here or there and adjusting against another top team to not let a lead slip away late if you have one? Or is this a larger issue that has just kind of been a a microcosm of the Colts all this year?
5: Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, I really do. I think it's, you know, the Colts were a team at the beginning of the season. They uh, defensively corrected a lot of mistakes from the year before in terms of being a good fourth quarter team you know for a while there the Colts were the only team up until like I forget whatever week it was it might have been week six or seven that late into the season where the Colts were the only team that didn't give up a fourth quarter touchdown and unfortunately um, that has doomed them um, in reverse these last couple of weeks I mean the commanders game You know, it's just like that one big drive that that sort of dooms the Colts and they just can't get over the hump. You know, gave up a touchdown to the Commanders at home, the Philly game where you're up by 10 points in the fourth quarter and you can't close that game out. Um, You know, same sort of thing uh, against Pittsburgh on Monday night. You know, you gave up a huge touchdown in the fourth quarter after just dominating them in the third quarter, but it's it's just that one drive that ends up just – uh, being debilitating for the Colts in terms of their uh, ability to hang on and, and and get these close wins. And then obviously the fourth quarter in Dallas, I mean, the offense had a lot to do with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that that's all part of it in terms of being an elite defense. Even though you're being put in some bad situations, it's still your job to go out there and force threes instead of sevens or get off the field on third down. And the Colts just didn't do that defensively in the fourth quarter last time out so yeah i, I think it is a more of a bigger uh, picture issue with this colts team trying to be you know better and, and get themselves into the elite category and that all starts with just being you know better in the fourth quarter and shutting teams down when it really matters
2: matt when it comes down to the towel the tape how enticing is that stefan gilmore versus justin jefferson potential matchup
4: yeah, it's it's
5: there, but the problem is is that they move him around so much and so often that I, I don't know if it's going to be strictly you know great on great, if you will, with Jefferson and Gilmore. You you, know, you like to have you know your your best corner on him as much as possible, but you know Jeff Saturday actually talked about that today and with the media and then with me uh, for our pregame show and our interview for Happy Hour tomorrow. Is that they're so creative about moving him around because they're cognizant of the matchups and they want to get him free um, you know he he knows the entire route tree from almost every wide receiver position you know with within that offense so they can line them up in the slot, they can put him outside. and then if you go back and look at the tape with with Detroit, you know they, they did everything they're supposed to be doing to win that football game. And the dude still goes out there and he posts two twenty three, and that's that's scary. It's, it's it's kind of terrifying because teams are doubling him and they're rolling coverage his way and they're putting their best cornerbacks uh, on him and he's still making you know terrific catches and putting up huge yardage games and finding the end zone. So there's no doubt they have to you know hold him to a reasonable number on Saturday to have a chance to win. But the problem is, is that. You still have to slow down the running game with Dalvin Cook, and they still have great possession receiver in Adam Thielen, and they made a trade of the deadline to bring in versatile tight end T.J. Hawkinson, who's really kind of their number two target right now. Uh, you know, being that versatile hybrid type position, and so they've got a really scary offense. And uh, with with Kirk Cousins, you know, they love to roll him out on those boots, get him out of the pocket. He's uber accurate. Um, you know, he, he takes a lot of criticism because the perception of him is that, you know, he's this box score quarterback, kind of this stat-stuffing QB. But, man, if you watch him at times, when he gets into a rhythm and gets into the flow of the offense, he's just as dangerous as, you know, the, the top guys going right now in this league. And so offensively, yeah, they're very formidable. It starts with Jefferson, but, you know, he's still making catches and, and double-team coverages, and obviously everybody else can beat you as well if you spend too much time focusing on where number uh, 18 is.
0: Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, nice enough to join us. You can follow him on Twitter at Colts, Getting ready for Colts Vikings on Saturday. Uh, speaking of Colts Vikes on Saturday, Tay, how, how far into the broadcast uh, before you break out a Saturday on Saturday type pun?
5: <laughs> I'm going to leave that for you guys. I'm going to leave that one alone. Well, there's already yeah. a commercial running, so you're in good shape. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, I, I'm cheesy, but I ain't that cheesy. So I'm gonna leave that up to you guys.
0: So, go ahead. So just Saturday in the park, then it'll be it'll be planned for you on <laughs> Rejoiners. Is that what we're going with.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll 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 keep that one in the back pocket. Looking looking forward to it. You know, we'll make a lot of uh, you know Saturday matinee discounted prices. Uh, you know, on those on those movie tickets, if you will, coming up in this game. But it'll be fun. I mean, that place is gonna be rocking. Like I said, they can clinch a division championship with a win on Saturday. And we played there last year in the preseason. And that that place gets loud. And uh, with all that's on the line for them, that, that place is going to be Really, really loud in terms of decibels, and it should be a really good environment.
2: Maytay, I did want to ask this before we say so long. You brought up TJ Hawkinson going to Minnesota, but seemingly one of the strengths of the Colts' offense with Matt Ryan has been the Colts' tight end play. It seems like whether it's Mo Ali Cox, Jelani Woods, or Kylan Granson, at least one of them has a positive day when Matt Ryan starts. Just your thoughts on that.
5: Well, especially here as of late, I mean, Jelani Woods is coming on. I mean, against the Steelers on Monday Night Football, I mean, whatever it was, I think it was like eight or nine catches for 98 yards. Uh, I think he's got 10 catches in these last two games for over 120. And, you know, that was one of the things that was sort of kicked around and debated before the bye week is, you know, should he be more involved? And the problem is that he was coming off that shoulder injury and missed a couple of games before the Pittsburgh game. And so he got acclimated kind of slowly and surely back into the lineup because of that. But here's the thing. I mean, with, with Woods, and, and maybe take it a step further and, and have another rookie pass catcher into this conversation, Alec Pierce, not only do these two guys need to play well for their development going into year number two as sophomores, if you will, but I think they have to play well, and they need a lot out of those two guys in order to win these last four games. I mean, development's one thing, but you need those guys to produce in order to have a chance, you know, to, to come out on top in, the, in this final month of the season because of uh, you know what what they've shown. I mean, both guys kind of started slow if you go back to training camp, which seems so long ago now, but. You know, Neither guy was catching a ton of passes with the first-team offense with Matt Ryan. I mean, if you go back to training camp, it seems like two out of at least three catches were going to Michael Pittman Jr. Um, but those guys have slowly developed, and I think Matt Ryan especially as the quarterback of this offense has developed a lot of trust and a lot of confidence in those two guys. And, yeah, like I said, they, they need to be big for their development, but more so they need to be big in order for the Colts to have a chance to win these last four games.
0: Mate, have a good call. Thank you for making time for us. Looking forward to hearing it right on the fan and uh, en- enjoy what will be a-, a brief Sunday off for you with a Saturday ball game.
5: <laughs> I know it's weird, but I kind of like it though because I mean, you guys know you guys have called games. I mean, the hay's in the barn by Friday afternoon, right. so let's just grip it and rip it because a lot of times what happens is that like that Saturday day off before the Sunday game usually at one o'clock. You know, you, things dance out of your brain, and in Saturday night, you have to go back and make sure you cram it back in there. So I'm kind of looking forward to just getting it all in there, stuffing it in there, and, and gripping and ripping it. So it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Enjoy it, my friend, and have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you next week.
5: All right, boys, be well. Nice,
0: man. That is the voice of the Colts, Matt Taylor.